Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the words of Mark. We thank you for all the amazing ground that we're covering. Lord, I pray that, um, that these words are your words today, Father. I pray that, that whatever it is you want me to say, that it is absolutely from you, not from me. I thank you that you give us the opportunity to study your word and know you better. I pray today that we all walk out of here um, with a deeper understanding of the preparation that you were, were, were making happen for the advancement of the kingdom and that we're still part of it. So thank you for letting us be part of that mission. I pray that we represent you well. And it's in your son's name that we pray, amen. Well, last week, Rebecca was here. How fabulous was she? I, I saw those shoes, by the way. She had very fancy high heel red shoes. Those of you that watched online, too bad for you. You missed that. But she is so fantastic. I loved everything she taught. She's so, um, her and all her Greek words, right? Like, are y'all happy you have me back? Because I'm like, she's so smart. I'm like half the time going, wait, what? Pause, say it again. Um, but she was fabulous. I was, I'm so thankful that she was here. One of the things she said that I thought was so cool um, was she said that miracles are parables in motion. Do you remember when she said that? And she talked about those amazing miracles um, and then how they were just this delicate balance of fear and faith. And we're gonna talk about that again today. I think the interesting thing about um, our savior, you know, when he came and he was, he was performing miracles and then he's preparing the disciples, which that's what we're gonna talk about today. We see that he is recognizing that there's a lot of things to be afraid of. He doesn't ever say, you know, this blows my mind. He never says, there's nothing to be afraid of. He says, don't be afraid. And so when we talk about faith, just remember that when he's talking about the preparation that he's giving to these disciples, he's not saying it's not scary. He's saying, do it scared, you know? Well, as I mentioned, there's so much that we covered. You guys covered like two chapters of Mark. We're not gonna do that in here today because we wanna go home at some point. But what we are gonna do is I'm gonna zoom in on just a couple of the stories that we covered, okay? Because I felt like um, where we need to go today is looking at how Jesus was preparing the disciples, readying the troops for the advancement of the kingdom, okay? So there's five areas we're gonna focus on that Jesus was preparing the disciples, and I think he's preparing us today, okay? First is this we're gonna look at in chapter six, the beginning of chapter six, we're gonna look at him telling them to expect rejection, the second thing we're gonna look at is where he says that you have what you need. You are ready. You have what you need. The third thing we're gonna cover is how he tells them to remember to get away. And that's like my favorite part. I can't wait to get to that part. The fourth thing is he's gonna tell them, feed them, feed the people. And then the last thing is he's gonna instruct them on how to choose faith over fear. Choose faith over fear. Five things that Jesus does this week in getting them prepared for advancing the kingdom. The first is to expect rejection. And if you've slept since you read, open your Bible to chapter six. We're gonna look at the first section of what we read. Verses one through six, I think it is. And we're gonna look at how Jesus is going back to his hometown and they threw a big welcome home parade, didn't they? No, they did not. They were not cool at all, right? He goes home to Nazareth. Now, now before we start, I wanna explain something to you. Um, in the first uh, chap chapter one through five-ish, whatever, that Jesus was actually in and around Capernaum, okay, if you remember that. And I think when we talked about his family last time, we talked about how that, that was Jesus' home. Well, Capernaum had kind of become his home base, but Nazareth was where he grew up, okay? And this is the first time that he's gone back since the, the depiction of, of that whole event in Luke chapter four. So jot that down. Luke chapter four is the first time we hear about Jesus going back to Nazareth. And y'all, they were nasty. They were nasty to him. 
And so we're gonna see it happen again. Follow along with me. Chapter six, verses one through six. This is Jesus coming back to Nazareth. He went away from there and he came to his hometown, underline that, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished, underline astonished. They were saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works, underline mighty works, done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And they took, underline this, offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown. That stinks, doesn't it? And among his relatives in his own household. And he could, not do mighty, he could do no mighty work there, except he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them in verse six. And he marveled, underlined marveled, because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. A couple of things we need to understand. I mentioned the last time he was there, it's recorded in the book of Luke. That's been almost a year. Okay, when he was there, it was real early in his, in his ministry. So he's been there, it's almost been a year. Now listen, let me just give you a snapshot of how nasty they were a year ago, okay? Luke chapter four, verse 28, they said this. When, the, when they heard these things, meaning the people heard what Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, they were filled with wrath. These were his hometown folks, guys. This was a tiny little village, tiny, Okay. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through in their midst, he went away. They wanted to kill him. And so now he's back. So no parade, right? No parade. Um, actually, it's just, it's, they're still pretty nasty. There's a couple of things we see here that I wanna point out though. You notice the word astonished and you notice the word mighty works. Okay, this is interesting because we know that he hasn't been there in a year. We also know that when he left, he didn't get to do a lot of cool stuff. So everything they're talking about being astonished by, they had heard about it. They didn't witness it. None of that was done in Nazareth um, and they were rejecting him. And so they had heard about this. So think about this. At this point in the story, there's been um, eight-ish uh, instances of, of miracles, of healings. Okay, there's eight. I say ish because there's like one instance in um, chapter one, verses 32 through 34, where it says, and many happened in Capernaum. There was many other healings and miracles. And then we hear another many happened in chapter three. So at this point, Mark's only documented eight, but there's been a lot of things that have happened. So these folks would have heard about it. They did not get to witness it and see it. When you see the little phrase offense at him, that phrase literally means that they stumbled over him. You see, they weren't just mad at him. Um, they couldn't explain him, so they rejected him. They couldn't explain him. They couldn't reconcile the kid who grew up and became the carpenter and had brothers and sisters running around and doing his thing with what he was and who he was and what was happening. And so instead of understanding and opening their heart, we're gonna talk about hardened hearts in a minute. Instead of that, they just shut down, right, and rejected him. Well, the word marveled, I had you underline that too. I want you to know something about that. This word is very interesting. The word marveled, Jesus is only uses, they, there's only two times in the gospels that the word marveled is used that Jesus actually marveled over something. The other time was in Luke 7, and it was about the great faith of the Roman centurion. So Jesus was marveling at their unbelief. Crazy, right? 
Well, what did this rejection teach the 12? Remember we mentioned that the whole thing we're looking at is how these things were teaching the 12 and readying them for the kingdom advancement, okay? Jesus knew the thing they don't know yet, right? That he's gonna be gone physically. And so how was this readying them? Well, not everyone who hears will receive. And that sometimes the closest to us reject us the easiest. It even happened to him. You know, Jesus understands the darkness of rejection, you probably know rejection. Maybe you know rejection from those that were the closest to you. I don't know, but I will tell you this, that he understands the pain of it. And he knows it's coming for them, right? And so he brings them to Nazareth so they experience it and he can prepare them. So he knows the pain and the rejection of, of when people turn their back on you. And so what's the next thing that Jesus teaches them? Well, in the very next little section, verses seven through 13, he basically sends them out, right? And he sends them out and tells them, you have what you need. You have what you need. I think, um, I think about the disciples, you know, put myself in their shoes and I'm like, they're probably like, wait, wait, hold on. Like, we're your guys. We're not the guys, you know? And so right now he's sending them out and getting them ready. And so look with me at verse four, excuse me, verse seven. It says, and he called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits and he charged them, underline this, take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. I hope some of y'all put on two tunics today. Very cold outside, right? He didn't tell us we don't have to. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, verse 10. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if it is any place that will not receive you, then they will not listen to you. When you leave, underline this, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Verse 12, so they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick and healed them. All that sounds fabulous, but there's a couple of things we gotta think about here. Why on earth did he send them out two by two? Well, there's a couple practical reasons. One, safety. And two, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy like 17, Deuteronomy 19, there's, there's some requirements when things have to be verified. You have to have two witnesses. Okay, so it's always good to move in twos, right? So that's one reason why he had to move out in two, two by two. I love the fact that he gives them this, this <laughs> he tells them this, take what you already have. Take what you already have. And so in other words, he's just saying there's no special equipment needed to do what you gotta do. I immediately thought um, about mountain bikes, D didn't you also? <laughs> I've told y'all before, if you know me, um, that I have a crazy son and a crazy brother. They're both crazy. They ride mountain bikes like for hundreds of miles, like way in the mountains, and it's just dumb, okay? <laughs> Especially for those of us that get to go watch. We're like, can we just get this over with? Well, anyway, there's this one race that they do, and it's um, 100 miles, and it takes like 12 hours. Um, so those of us that go watch and help them, we're really the, the champions. Can we be clear about that? 12 hours? Anyway, that's a whole thing. But anyway, there's, I'm going somewhere, I promise. So there's this thing about this race. It's been going on for like 30 years. There's, there's been a couple documentaries about it. It's a cool thing. But I remember watching a few years ago, there's this documentary about this, the, the race and it profiled this dude named Ricky. Okay, and here's Ricky. Ricky looks like, um, like he is, he... He looks like a mountain man wearing a um, gas station shirt that says Ricky, okay? And Ricky rides a 30-year-old mountain bike 
And he has like a stuffed animal on the front of it and his bike helmet is like 30 years old. I mean, it's funny. When you see him, you're like, what is happening? I have just moved back into the 70s. But here's what's cool about Ricky. He's completed the race every year it's ever run on the same bike. And you got all these dudes like my husband and my son rolling up with their, you know, titanium and, and you know, carbon fiber million dollar bikes and all their equipment and all their gadgets. And it's like Ricky rolls up with his clunkety old bike, right? It almost has like, like cards in the wheels. Like it's that, it's crazy. And he completes the race and he always says, you know, hey, I'm just here, I'm just here to ride and I'm here to, I'm here to just keep going and keep turning the pedals. Because they're like, how do you do that? That bike weighs 10,000 pounds, you know? He's like, just keep turning the pedals. And I thought about this because I thought, I think the disciples probably felt like they needed like this, like we do, right? A backpack full of, full of tell Jesus stuff, you know? I gotta have all the Bible verses memorized. I gotta, I gotta have like a shiny star because I go to this many Bible studies. I have to know all these things before I can tell people about Jesus. And he's saying, you don't need anything, you're prepared. Because here's what's happened when we start packing stuff in our backpack and tell people about Jesus and we try to be all shiny about it, then we're relying on other things instead of what Jesus has done in our hearts, right? Like I've said this a million times, I think Bible memorization is just so cool. I love that. Like I, I, I just have so many song lyrics in there. It's just really hard to find space. But what's cool is that I feel like the more I study and pray and ask him, it's like he infuses everything with his word. I may not always be able to quote where it came from and have it verbatim, but he is putting it in. And so I think he's trying to tell them the same thing. Look, you're prepared. You don't need to rely on a fancy bike. Just keep pedaling, you know? Well, he tells them also when they go place to place to stay in one house. Did you see that? I was like, what is that about? I really think it kind of goes back in line with the whole shiny bike thing. It's like, he doesn't want them to like Airbnb for the best accommodations, you know, like, oh, I'm gonna stay at this house. Well, wow, they're having dinner over there. I'm gonna move over. No, what he's trying to tell them is you are a servant. You are not a pampered guest. You're a servant. Do we tell the world about Jesus from a servant mentality? I mean, that's what Jesus is telling them. He tells them also this, this particular phrase, which you've probably heard before, shake the dust. The interesting thing about Jesus using it in this context though, this is, this is crazy, um, was that this is a Jewish custom that in the, in the olden days, the Jewish people, when they would go through a Gentile um, territory, they would like do this ceremonious, like shake the dust off their feet, you know, because they just don't even wanna have that on, on them. And Jesus is flipping it upside down, man. And he's saying basically, um, that if you go, if you're a Jew and you go to fellow Jews and they choose not to welcome the message of Jesus, then you shake the dust. And the idea of shaking the dust Jew to Jew would have blown their minds. And Jesus is saying, but this is a new, this is a new revelation. This is new. The, the, the Greek word for apostle is apostello, apostello. And you know what it means? It means this, it's, you know, it's one of those words, apostle. I say this all the time. The words that I think I know what they mean are the ones I need to look up more often because I just kind of skate right over them and ignore. And apostle is one of them. And this, the Greek for this, the actual definition is to send someone with a special commission to represent another and to accomplish his work. And so he is training them up because they are going to be representing Jesus. We are going to be representing Jesus. What did the sending of the 12 teach him? What did it teach them when he sent them out two by two? Well, the first thing it taught them is that they were ready, that they were ready. 
and that they had everything they needed, Jesus knows who he's sending. You're ready. You have everything you need. He knows who he's sending. We don't fool him, you know. I mean, I think sometimes um, we try with the right equipment and the right scripture memory, and we want people to know that, you know, we're at church this many times. And, but remember, there's this special commission to represent Jesus, and that's not what he was about, Right? He was the furthest thing from legalism that we see in the Bible. And we want to be like him. We're representing him. And what are we waiting on? His mission is still urgent. Don't wait for the fancy bike. Just keep pedaling, right? Well, the third thing I feel like um, Jesus is pointing out in this, in this passages that we're covering is, is, oh, it's my favorite part. Okay, so you know the story of the feeding of the 5,000. If you've never opened your Bible before, you've probably heard the thing about the loaves and fishes. You know, we all have heard it. Uh, but I've always missed the very first part, and that's what we're gonna look at, where he says to remember to get away. So look at that story. That starts in verse 30, and pause. Okay, the whole thing that happened right before they did the feeding of the 5,000, you saw that. You talked about it in your homework. The death of John the Baptist, that was, that was excruciating. And in fact, in other accounts, we know that Jesus was, was, was torn up about it, and he got away and prayed, and he was in solace and sadness about it. And so don't miss that. That was very important. But know that when we approach the feeding of the 5,000, the 12 have been off doing their thing. And Jesus is feeling the sadness and the loss of John the Baptist. And now everything is getting super heavy, right? Now we know that the government's involved and they're killing people. And so we know it's just a matter of time that they're coming after Jesus, right? So it's, there's a heaviness there, Okay. Well, in verse 30, it starts out like this. I told you um, that, that even though Mark is in a hurry, he is very intentional about this part. So we, we need to perk up and listen, okay? Verse 30 through 32 or so. He says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. I've always skipped right past that part. How about you? Even in Mark, you know, because he's just moving, moving, moving. But he's very intentional here of making sure we have a couple sentences to know that this was important. Why was this important? Well, I, uh, I think about this. I was read, I'm reading a book right now, and it's, it's um, about discipleship. And it's about, here's what it's about. This was so cool. And it's, I love it because I just ordered it randomly and I'm reading it. I'm like, huh, Jesus, it's all about Jesus. What do we study in Jesus? Okay, I see you, I see you. But this book is all about how Jesus's mission and his ministry was never about the masses. It was always about the one. Do you know that? Have you, have you seen that? Like think about for a second all the, all the miracles and the healings and things that you've already see happen. It's like Jesus looking into people's eyes and saying, I see you, Right? It's not this mass, like all the people crushing and he's like, and I'm healing you all, like come to the altar. It's not that, Jesus never does that, it's the one. Well, as I was reading through this and I thought about the time of getting away, um, I, I wondered to myself, what was the purpose? You know, we all say that it's important to get away with the Lord and get away in the quiet, right? But, but, but Jesus does it over and over and over again. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. And now he's instructing them to do it because he knows what's coming. Going back to the book I was reading, it's called One at a Time and it's by Kyle Alderman. And, and he covers this section and he says this one thing and I thought this was just so right on what we're talking about. I had to read it to you. He talks about this principle called 
in, as in I-N, then, through, like through a tunnel, okay? In, then, through. You're gonna catch on in just a second. And what he says is, is basically that we need to understand that we need to be asking God to work in us before we go out and let him work through us. We get it backwards, don't we? Here's what he said. Listen, this is just, I just felt like this was just so Jesus-y. Okay, here we go. Most of us regularly have those, I need to do something moments. Think of one. You had a moment like that where you're like, I gotta do something. I'm on fire. This, I know this is the Lord telling me to do something, right? We feel compelled to make a difference, but how? After enough moments of feeling like we should do something, but not knowing what to do, we learn the silence, that voice. I need to do something gets replaced with somebody should do something. It's not that we don't want to do something. It's just that we don't know what to do. Amen? We've been there, right? For a long time, I felt compelled to do something. I would pray, God, what do you want me, what do you want to do through me? But what I learned along the way is that often my first prayer should be, God, what do you want to do in me? Because the work of God does, excuse me, because the work God does in you will lead to the work God does through you. Let me say it again. The work God does in you will lead to the work God wants to do through you. This radically changes our approach to being difference makers. As much as I might want to skip the in and go straight to the through, God's approach is consistently in, then, through. And that's what we're seeing right here. He is saying to these disciples, you first have to get away and get with God before you go feed 5,000, right? He wants them to know that there's something that has to happen in them. And Jesus models it over and over. I mentioned that before. Just listen, okay? Listen, a lot of these we've already hit and Mark, some of them we're gonna hit moving on. I don't, you don't have to jot any of this down. Just listen to Jesus modeling this, okay? It starts out in chapter one and it goes all the way through. Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went to a solitary place another time. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. Chapter two, our Sabbath, on one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. Remember that? And the disciples were following behind him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples. Jesus went on a mountain side to pray, to spend time with God. Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. He withdrew by a boat. He said, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and rest. Mark 6, after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Mark 7, Jesus entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Another time, Jesus was praying in private. Then Jesus went on from there. He went up to a mountain. He sat down there. Another time in Mark 9, he led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. Do you see the pattern here? It keeps going. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. One day, Jesus went away. One day, Jesus kept silent for most of a 22-mile hike with his disciples. This was Jesus's usual place to pray when he went to Jerusalem. And in Mark 14, they went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Over and over and over, Jesus models and now tells his disciples, 
You have to let God work in you before he works through you. What did getting away teach the 12? When he's telling them that we've got to get away, what did it teach them? That they needed to give space for God to work in them before they wanted him to work through them. We gotta give space. You see, that's a choice. Jesus knows what we need first. We get it backwards sometimes. I do. There's a lot of doing I want to happen and I forget, you know, I saw this illustrated one time by a pastor. He said, you know, our, whenever you are, are trying to minister to people or tell people about Jesus, you know, we do a lot of this. We throw, we throw God's word at them and we do a lot of, well, Jesus said this and you should do this and you should do, you know, instead of saying, I need this in me and then I can share it. I need this in me and then I can share it. And that's what Jesus is modeling. So before we see this big giant thing about the feeding the 5,000, we have this very important like two verse section about working and letting God do things in us. I hope you hear that. They needed to hear it. Well, then we go into the big stuff, right? The feeding, the feeding of the 5,000 in verses uh, 33 through 44, we see the very familiar story, don't we? And I'm, for the sake of time, I'm not gonna go into all the detail because you read it and you know it. But one thing we know is that, um, that they were going and the people were recognizing them and they came there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So there's all the people now. So there's tons of people. And when he went ashore, he saw a great, excuse me, a great crowd and underline this, this is Jesus. And he had compassion on them. Underline he had compassion on them. because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, oh, they're such troublemakers and they're such problem solvers, these guys. Seriously, here's what they said. This is a desolate place. This is my, this is my disciple voice. Last night I was like, my disciple voice sounds a lot like my teenager voice, so enjoy it. Okay, ready? This is a desolate place and the hour's late. Like we're super tired, right? Then he goes, <laughs> I gotta quit talking like that. He says, send them away. And they can go into the surrounding countryside and the villages and they can buy themselves something to eat. I'm doing it again. I can't help it. They sound so ridiculous, don't they? It's like, what were they doing when he sent them out two by two, right? Like they were supposed to be sharing this beautiful, amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet they come back here and they're a little tired. So they're like, just send them to go get their own food. And so that's how, again, I can't stop. Okay. <laughs> but Jesus answered them. You give them something to eat. Underline that. I'm gonna pause. Uh, you know how the rest of the story goes. Jesus is then gonna bless and he's gonna break the bread and he's gonna perform the miracle. But here's what I want you to understand. Whenever you see this, okay, first going back to the first part where it says he saw them, he saw the people, that word saw, it's a specific word that happens 40 times in the gospels. Uh, the Greek is horeo, H-O-R-A-O. He saw, okay? But here's what's amazing about that. It's Jesus saw things in a different way, didn't he? Amen. He saw the one. He saw every one of those people. The 12 saw the masses, right? They saw the, the, the pain. They saw the frustration. They saw the imposition. And Jesus saw one person at a time. I just imagine the craziness of all that. But Jesus saw the one. He saw each one of them. The other thing that Jesus saw is he saw potential, didn't he? 
He saw potential to serve and love these people. He said, they're sheep without a shepherd. You know what the 12 saw? God love them. They saw problems, didn't they? They had two brilliant suggestions, right? Self-help suggestions, which don't we do that when we're lazy and tired? (laughs) Go read this blog, go do this. But instead, we wanna see like Jesus sees. We don't wanna see like the 12 saw. It's such a lesson for them because here's what's, what's crazy about it. Jesus actually was the one who manufactured the miracle, okay? We know that the loaves and fishes thing, now all of a sudden they're feeding thousands and thousands of people. 5,000 was just the men represented. Remember, he's got them sitting in groups. So we know there's a massive number of folk that are about to be fed, right? But what's so cool is that he manufactures the miracle, but then he lets the 12 distribute. He lets them be part of it. I've always found this interesting. I heard years ago, I think it was Priscilla Shire, she taught this. She said, you know, I think this miracle is less about the feeding and the miracle and more about teaching the disciples. You are the ones to feed them, amen? And we gotta hear that because this is us, guys. Like, we are the ones that are feeding. And so how are we seeing them? You give them something to eat, Jesus said. In chapter eight, you know, in chapter eight, you went into another miracle, chapter eight, verses one through 10, um, about feeding and stuff. And and some people are like, oh, it's the same thing. Look, I'm doing it again. Why am I talking like this? (laughs) I don't know, I'm punchy. You know, it's a different miracle. Here's why we know. It's different. (laughs) That's why it's different. There's different numbers. There's different, it's different place. Um, This miracle, I'm just giving you a little sidebar because it kind of feels the same thing. And here's why I think. In chapter eight, you have um, basically Jesus is doing the whole thing over again, very similar circumstances. The difference are the numbers, 4,000, 5,000. You've got um, the five loaves versus seven loaves, seven leftover baskets versus 12. And, and, the, and, the, and the one in um, the 5,000, I think they were there for one day. And this one, they were there for three days. So they were real hungry, y'all. But here's what's interesting about the one that happens in chapter eight, and I hope you'll pay attention, is that this one happens in a primarily Gentile environment. And so the other one happened in a Jewish environment. So the most of the people that would have seen and heard and experienced it were Jewish people. This is Gentiles. In fact, we are not gonna go into the, 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 the miracles that happened right before, but there's two miracles that happened right before that they are all happening in a Gentile area. This is new people hearing new things. And Mark makes note that, make sure that we understand that. This feeding of the the 4,000 thing, that only happens, it's only talked about in the book of Mark and then Matthew also tells it. But he felt important enough to say that it happened twice. And here's what I find interesting about the one that happened in chapter eight. Notice um, verse four, chapter eight, verse four. And his disciples answered him. Okay, here we are again. We're back into, we've been doing all the, you know, we're so tired because ministry. And then all of a sudden, here's how they talk to him. How can we, uh, how can one feed these people with bread in here? It's just a desolate place. What's the deal, man? We just saw him do it. And here they are again, right? In their teenager voice, complaining. And then I'm like, hey, Chris, this is you. This is me. It might be you too. That over and over and over, Jesus invites us into the miracle and we forget, don't we? Maybe they didn't get away to a desolate place and get filled up first, I don't know. But whatever it was, he had to do it again because these crazy 12 were not paying attention apparently and they didn't trust that Jesus could and would take care of the many. Well, what do we learn from the feeding of the people? What does it teach the 12? 
Um, it teaches them that they can choose to see with his eyes. That they can see the ones, that they can see the potential. Do we see that way? Do we see that way? That is one of the hardest prayers to pray, but also one of the most um, fruitful prayers I think I've ever prayed is, is Lord, just let me, you, let me see with your eyes because my eyes are just messed up sometimes. And I don't mean just physically. I see things with the veil of, of sin, with the veil of frustration, with the veil of hurting, all the things over me, instead of just seeing with his eyes, right? It's like when you think about the 5,000 that he's seating in the groups and he's breaking the bread and whatever, I just see this. I see Jesus walking up and holding their faces and say, I see you, I love you. And then a lot of them went away because they just wanted the spectacularness of the miracle and maybe they were hungry and they went away and went back to their normal lives and did their thing, but that didn't change what Jesus did over and over and over. I wanna be that too. I think we need to be that too. Listen, um, the last thing that we wanna cover and we wanna move fast is another familiar story and it's in chapter six, verses 45 through 52 and it's where they're back in a boat right? Our precious little 12, they're back in a boat. Jesus is telling them to choose faith over fear. To choose faith over fear. You notice I use the word choose because I mentioned before that the world is full of scary stuff that doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. If you ever hear anybody tell you all you need is Jesus and you won't be afraid anymore, you run because that's a lie. Because the world's a scary place. And he knows this. That's why we get this, right? That's why we get this story. Well, let's take a look at it. It's a really familiar story. Um, it's also recorded. <laughs> this is what's funny. There's one little important detail that was left out of the Mark account. Anybody know what it is? Sweet little Peter. Yeah, remember, we're looking at this whole story. Mark is documenting the story from Peter's perspective. I'm, uh, this is just me. Don't, this is not true. I'm wondering if Peter's like, yeah, 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 let's leave that part out. The part where I, where I try to walk and then I sink and all the, let's just kind of leave that out. Well, anyway, it's out. But you can find the whole story in Matthew chapter 14. He gives the whole beautiful thing that's so awesome. Okay, let's look at this. Um, chapter six, verse 45. I'm gonna go fast. What's the first word? Don't, oh, our cute little Mark, bless his heart. Immediately, he made his disciples get into a boat. Um, so think about it. When we hear immediately, we know that we're giving a time cue, right? So, so we know that all the craziness just happened, feeding the 5,000, that was a lot of nonsense, crazy mess of people, right? And so now he's like, everybody back in the boat, okay? <laughs> everybody back in the boat. His disciples get into the boat and they go before him to the other side to Bethesda. And while he dismissed the crowd, bless him. Wouldn't you like to hear that, that dismissal? <laughs> so they're gone, he's dismissing. And after he had taken leave of them, this is Jesus, he went up to the mountain to pray. Again, getting away, right? Getting away with the Lord. And when the evening came, underline evening, so they're out on the boat, 12 guys on a boat. The boat was out on the sea and he was all alone on the land. So he's not physically present. Do you remember the last time we had a boat miracle happen? Where was Jesus? Chilling out, taking a nap, right? In the boat, not in the boat now. There's significance there, so just note that. He's not in the boat, so he's alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. So he's fully aware of what's going on, right? Totally knows. And at about the fourth watch, underline that, of night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. Underline that, I'm gonna talk about that in a minute because I know that feels confusing. But when they saw him walking on the sea, 
They thought it was a ghost and they cried out for they all they saw, excuse me, for they all saw him and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and he said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and when they were all, and they were all astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Okay, this follows immediately after the loaves and fishes and stuff that happened, right? Where he, where he made, like fed all the people and, and had the disciples be a part of that mission, right? They still didn't understand it. He said they had hardened hearts. Can Christians have hardened hearts? They can have hardened hearts. I mean, I know people, I have been those people that there are times when we are just not seeing with Jesus' eyes, we are seeing with Chris' eyes and we start getting you know, disenchanted and angry and upset. This hardening of their hearts, don't misunderstand that. That wasn't necessarily, they didn't believe. It's just in this moment, they, they weren't really believing what they were seeing. They weren't really buying in. They were just kind of along for the ride. That's kind of how I look at it. Well, a couple of things to notice. At this moment, what we see in this little boat situation, we see several miracles happen, don't we? We see Jesus walks on water. We know that in the, in the Matthew version that Peter will walk on water. We know that Jesus will still the, the storm once he gets in. We know that the boat's gonna arrive safely. There's a lot of things that were miraculous. But Mark is giving us this sense of urgency. You know, He's making us understand, okay, they jumped in the boat really fast, so there was probably some danger. There's probably the crowd situation was probably getting out of control. But here's what I find so interesting. Did you think about this? Jesus knows, right? He knows what's coming. And he knew that they needed to get out of the pressing of all the people, but where did he lead them? He led them right into a what? Led them right into a storm. He knew exactly what he was doing. Get on the boat, pull up the anchor, off you go. I know what's coming. After this miraculous day of ministry, he leads them into a storm. I, I think about the, the mountaintop moments of life. Like I, I would suspect watching the 5,000 people eat these loaves and fishes that just didn't even have enough to feed one guy. I cannot imagine how incredible that was. And now they're in the storm. I, I, I think about those mountaintops and then you just, you have this amazing day and then you just drop right into this dark, terrible, desolate valley. Have you ever had those days? Maybe it's not even a ministry mountaintop. Maybe it's just a life mountaintop. And then the next day you're like, I wanna go back, right? You wanna go back and live? I wanna live up there. Trust me, life happens in the valley. It does not happen on the mountaintop. And Jesus knows this. You know, I know this because I've been at that mountain bike race. There are no trees up there, y'all, because there's no air. <laughs> Nothing can live up there. And it's like those mountaintop moments, those beautiful, miraculous, amazing things, even in God's word, even with the disciples, the chosen, were not intended to be where they lived, man. They had to come back down to the valley because that's where the rest of us are, right? And so, miraculous day of ministry, now they're in the middle of a storm. Jesus is not in the boat. He's nowhere to be seen. How long were they out there? I, I think it's interesting that we have some time cues here. We have, and we understand that it was evening, so that means the sun was setting, and we know that that's when they went. And then that was the fourth watch. You know what time the fourth watch is? Three to six a.m. These guys were out there struggling in the storm of the century for hours. And where was Jesus? Up on the mountain, praying. Right. He saw them, he knew where they were. 
You see that phrase um, where it said that he, to, to pass beside them. Look, when I first read that too, I was like, he is so rude, what the heck? I was ignoring them. That's not what that phrase meant. The people that the original readers or hearers would understand, that phrase was calling back to an, like an Old Testament theophany. You know what a theophany is? I didn't either. Theophany is a visible manifestation of God. So in the Old Testament, there's a couple of times where God shows up, but he shows up by passing by because his glory is so intense that the person that he's showing up to, like Moses, can't even take it. And you can find a couple of those. There's one in Exodus 33, 19, Exodus 33, 22. There's one in 1 Kings 19, 11. And so that's what was happening. You have the glory of the Lord is passing them by. So he's present with them the whole time, never leaves. He just wasn't in the boat. He reassures, he comforts in the midst of the storm. I think it's interesting that um, he doesn't see the storm and the waves start coming and he immediately from his Jesus mountaintop says, you know what, I need to calm that storm because they need some calm, they need some peace. Instead, no, he's like, crank it up, keep it going. I feel like sometimes in life we are in that boat and we are there through the fourth watch and we feel like he's not there, you know, but he is, he's praying and he knows and he's watching what did Jesus want them to learn from this? What did he want the 12 to understand from this that they're gonna take with them into ministry? That he wanted them to know that they gotta choose faith in the storms of fear. You have to choose. Even when he doesn't stop it, even in the waiting, even in the fear, he's always knowing, praying, and present, even when things don't stop. I, I, you know, that's a hard lesson, right? We, we wanted to hear a different story. <laughs> but this is the truth of ministry. This is the truth of life. Well, he was preparing his 12 guys in closing. Listen, there was, there was this physical departure that was coming and they didn't understand it, did they? We know what's coming because we're on this side of the story. They didn't know. He's preparing them. He's preparing them that I'm not always gonna be in the boat, guys. You gotta have faith, you gotta trust, you gotta believe. Expect rejection, you have what you need. Remember to get away, feed them, choose faith over fear. The affirmation of the faith of the 12, it serves as an anchor. Uh, this, this next section that you're gonna go into is the whole anchor and the, the whole like thing that holds this whole thing together. You're about to read the coolest part, in my opinion, of the book of Mark, and it's in chapter eight, verses 27 through 30, and I'm gonna read it and give you a preview because think about all the ground we've covered, all the things that Jesus has been teaching his 12, and then we get this in chapter eight, verses 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, you know, who do people say that I am? And so they go on to answer. They told him, well, John the Baptist and the others say that Elijah, that you're Elijah, or others, one of the prophets. And then here's where it gets real. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. You see, he was readying them for what was coming. 
and, and we're about to see a corner turned where now we're gonna start seeing really hard things that he's gonna tell them and prepare them for. He's gonna get them ready for the, the crucifixion and all the things that are gonna come. And it took all of these things for Jesus to build them up and get them ready. Who do you say that I am? You've been there too, you know? You've been a bystander along the way and, and you gotta answer this question. We cannot be neutral, right? Well, as you move into this new section next week that starts with that, that awesome, amazing declaration by Peter, there's a couple things I wanna challenge you to do. I wanna challenge me to do. First is this, that I think we need to rethink rejection. Rethink rejection, what do I mean by that? I mean, have you experienced rejection from people that are closest to you in some way or another? Have you? We, we, we all have, right? And some of us carry that with us, you know, like a chip on our shoulder and everything we see is through the veil of that rejection. But maybe we need to move forward in these relationships and consider what Jesus taught the disciples. I am not, let me be clear, I am not telling you go reconcile all the things and I don't, I'm not telling you, I'm telling you, maybe ask the Lord what he wants you to do, how he wants to change you in the midst of how you see the rejection, Right? Let him do something in you. Because sometimes, sometimes that rejection can hold us way back, right? Like I, I laugh every time I get up here to do Bible study. Whenever I see somebody that I've known that's like known me from like, you know, college or high school or middle school, oh, it just gets uglier and uglier. I'm like, oh, I just feel like I need to go give him a disclaimer and go, but I'm new in Christ, please believe me. <laughs> right, but we all do that, don't we? We're like, oh, you know all the things. But that's the beauty of, of, of our Lord, right? Is he knows all the things too. So are those places where you feel rejected? Maybe re-approach re those things with him. I don't know. The second thing I wanna tell you is, is let's take the in, then, through idea into our lives. What do I mean? Maybe identify some areas of your life you need to shift your prayer. I, I came across one of these just this week where I was praying a lot of action. Like, God, what do you want me to do? What do I do about this? What do I do for her? What do I do? And it's almost like I heard his God voice say, you get with me and let me do things in you. I'll figure out the through, I'll figure out the rest. And so maybe we do that. Maybe what we do is we approach him and say, um, transform my prayers, transform my intentions. And I would suggest jot it down, journal it. Like that's what happened to me. I was in the middle of this whole, like this giant list to God about all the things I was about to do. And it was almost like he just flipped the page on me and said, we got work to do here first. Maybe that's you, I don't know. Um, but invite him in, ask him. Say, what do you wanna do in me? Y'all, um, I'm excited that Jesus left all of this for the 12. You know why? Because we are the 12. We are the hands and feet of Christ. We are here. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much that um, you had such great intention with what was coming Lord, forgive us for those times when we choose fear over faith. When, when you're not in the boat, we can't physically see you. It's hard, but that's what faith is. And so Father, will you strengthen that in us? Will you show us the places where we need more of you in us before we can go out and try to work on behalf of you? Lord, Lord um, gosh, that convicted me this week. I need you to change me. I need you to work in me. And I know we all need that. And so show us those ways that you wanna work in us, in our hearts, Lord, and then um, just equip us and ready us 
to turn the pedals. And we're here for it. And if there's anybody here, Lord, that doesn't know you, that doesn't have a personal relationship with you, that hasn't, hasn't come to you and said, hey, I understand that I am a sinner and I will never, ever, ever, ever be able to get close to you. I pray that they right now understand that Jesus Christ came to die for all of it. Sin of the past, sin of the now, sin of the then. And that they just receive that and say, I don't deserve it, but I'll take it. Thank you. Thank you that you give us the option. And it's in your precious son's name that we pray, amen.